This is the second Sunday of Easter, and every second Sunday of Easter we read the Gospel from John about Thomas. So after the great uh, joyful celebration of Easter and the celebration of new life and the resurrection, we now confront the next week uh, the whole issue of, gee, maybe it didn't happen and I'm not going to believe it, skepticism, doubt comes into the picture, and Thomas often gets singled out as sort of the person who, uh, who reflects this, this skepticism about the resurrection. So it's appropriate to preach about this, but here's how I'm going to approach it. I want to say a few things by way of introduction about what I said last week, about what we as Episcopalians understand as authoritative in uh, looking at matters of faith and belief, to remind us of what Father Thomas Keating says about how our liturgical life brings us always, each Sunday, in whatever season in the liturgical year, uh, face to face with three important theological ideas that have application in our own life and in our own spiritual development. Then I'm going to say something to you about doubt and how it functions in our present culture, to say some things about science and religion and then briefly to speak about the gospel that gives us two things to take home with us this week, the ministry of reconciliation and coming to belief, which is what the Savior says to Thomas when Tom, after Thomas gets his little treat. I was thinking uh, as I was preaching at 8 o'clock many, many years ago, this dates me, but there was a movie called Those Magnificent Men in their flying machines, and per Sir Percy Ware Armitage, who was Terry Thomas, was the guy who was sabotaging all the planes for the channel crossing to fly over them. And so he has his manservant, Rodney, do the sabotage, you know, filing the air, whatever those things are called in biplanes, and doing this and sabotaging this. And then he allows him to uh, stay there while these planes begin to take off and crash so he can see the fruits of his labor. And then Sir per Percy looks at him when he sends him on another job and said, don't think you'll be getting little treats like this all the time, Rodney. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that means, of course, that Thomas got a little treat, which he wasn't going to probably continue to get uh, as he sought to live the resurrection faith. Episcopalians believe that there are three things that we always look to as authoritative in our common faith in life. The Bible, the biblical witness, the tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. And I mentioned also last time, and I will be, be beating this horse to death probably for a, long, a while, the church is prior to the scriptures. Episcopalians believe the church is prior to the scriptures. That's not me saying it, it's Henry Chadwick, who has forgotten more about the early Christian church than anybody will ever remember or know. The church is prior to the scriptures. And that means that the tradition with a capital T is the source, in some sense, of the biblical witness. However, we accord a great deal of centrality and authority to the Bible, and it's one of the, the three legs of the three-legged stool. Father Thomas Keating says that at the liturgy, 
when we seek to appropriate the deep things of Christian faith and belief, and now in Easter, uh, the resurrection faith and what the idea of transformation and new life might look like in our own lives and in our, the lives of the community of faith, seeking to be faithful and reaching out, that we confront these three things. The light of God, the life of God, and the love of God. And so the light of God is going to be understood, he says, as wisdom. Not wisdom that God whispers in your ear, but wisdom that you gain through the accumulated experience of responding to the opportunities and the uh, challenges that are in front of you on a daily basis. So we gain some species of practical wisdom in that process, and also as Christians come to believe that is what they connect to, the light of God. And in the great 50 days, it's the Paschal candle as the symbol of the light of Christ, the illuminative process of God externally showing us the way and internally showing us some things about ourselves and how we might function in a more healthy and sensible way in relationship. The life of God is the empowerment that we receive through the presence of the Holy Spirit. So when in the collect, the, the prayer that we pray to open the Mass says we are now part of, the, Jesus has given us the new covenant of reconciliation. It has to do in some ways with understanding the power that we have received through the Spirit of God at our baptism. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. And finally, the love of God is the idea of the possibility and the fact in big and small ways of the transforming power of God, which is one of the ways we might understand resurrection as transformation. So those things sort of are predicates for the great 50 days of Easter as we think about what it is we're going to do with this season. Over the past three or four years, I've mentioned this in sermons, there have been a number of books, three or four important ones, that have been really uh, uh, substantial attacks on the life of faith and the idea that religious belief has any value at all for human beings. I'm thinking of the end of faith by... What's his name? Harris, um, The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, the great evolutionary biologist. There's a lot, a lot of these books that have come out. They're very articulate people, and they have come to, the, to uh, the public with the view that they are now obliged. They have an apostolic mission to make sure that we stop as quickly as possible any idea of faith or belief. So it's important to say some things about that. Most of these guys are scientists. And they feel that uh, not only is religion obstructionist with regard to the scientific progress, but it also has produced more uh, bad detritus over history than is necessary. And if we just got over it, uh, we'd be in far better terms. And I think what annoys them more than anything else is what some, I think the sociologist Peter Berger said many years ago, the persistence of religion. It seems to be something that is staying with us. 
Alan Jones, the, the just recently retired Dean of Grace Cathedral, wrote a book two or three years ago called Reimagining Christianity, How to uh, Reconnect Your Faith Without Disconnecting Your Mind. And in a chapter on the issue of the relationship between science and religion, he talks about evolution and creationism. And here are some things he says that I offer to you without prejudice. The creationist wants to talk about meaning and gets it confused with science. The evolutionist wants to talk about science and can't help sneering at religion. Many biologists seem to think that the theory of evolution, revised or otherwise, denies the possibility of design and order point to the possibility of God. Denies the possibility and that design and order point to the possibility of God. That's an easier way, I hope you get that. The creationists respond negatively and neither side understands the other. I have to confess that until recently I wasn't really aware of the reductionist assumptions of the evolutionist establishment. I'd always had a benign view of scientists, so I'm surprised to find myself thinking that creationists have a point, not a scientific one, but a theological one. Scientists, as scientists, have no business affirming or denying purpose in the universe. And people of faith err when they come to scientific conclusions based on creedal or biblical texts. My experience with scientists is that they are not so much arrogant as ignorant of how to play the game of theology. Some think it is a game so silly that it's not worth playing. Yet they cannot help but dabble in the meaning to which science points. You know, I much prefer, on the skeptical side of things, some of you have heard of Stephen Jay Gould. He died a few years ago. He was, he was a paleontologist or a whatever, his fossil guy and an evolutionist. And he came up in his writings with the idea of punctuated equilibrium. You know, that we haven't had sort of an evolutionary thing, kind of you go like this, but it stops, and then you have this burst of all these different life forms, and then it sort of settles down, and then you do it again, and that's sort of how this has happened. So in an interview, by the way, he was a really interested in baseball, and he knew a whole lot about it, but that's another thing. Uh, he... He said, you know, the more I do all this, and I've studied all in the fossil record, and I do all this, is the more to me uh, is that this whole thing because is, has no meaning. It's just here. I can't, I can't get, doing what I do, I can't get to a purpose. But that's not my job. I'm not equipped to comment. Now, many of his colleagues don't believe that and think that they are equipped to comment. And it is equally true of certain species of Christians who believe that they're free to comment about the scientific way of doing things when they are not and they should just be quiet and leave it alone. Leave it alone. Just to put a fine point on this, for those of you who wonder, uh, Episcopalians do not have a problem with evolution. It hasn't been something that has, has been, uh, you know, a big issue about how we understand things in that regard. 
So, you know, we're not uh, engaged in any immediate uh, uh, movement to get rid of teaching evolution in the schools or advancing, you know, the uh, junk science that uh, some of the creationists uh, wish to put forward. We, we are not in favor of that. And as I have said to you before, you and I need to be able to bring the full force and effect of our intellectual powers on the deep things of Christian faith and belief. And that is part of our job and responsibility as faithful Christians. So let's go to the gospel and say some things about this resurrection appearance. I'm not talking in this sermon, and probably maybe I will as we go through the great 50 days, getting into a long thing about the nature of the resurrection and the bodily resurrection and no and one thing and another is, you know, a thing that really I'm really not that interested in. My own personal faith is such that I have probably very traditionalist views about what happened on Easter. So to put a fine point on it, which is taking a big risk, if somebody was there with a video camera, something, someone came out of the tomb. Okay? So there are whole lots of ways that the church talks about that, and the biblical witness is not consistent about the nature of the resurrected body and who Jesus appeared to be and what he appeared like. And you know what? The early Christians who wrote that biblical witness were okay with it. They were fine with those ambiguities. And I think that probably is something we might be too. Jesus appears to the apostles two times in this gospel. And the first section of the gospel is John's version of what is called technically the bestowal of the keys. He gives the apostles the power to bind and lose sin. To forgive sins. Or to retain them. And he breathes on them and gives them his spirit. So for John, what this means, if you can follow me, is this. The, the apostles now receive from Jesus the ministry of reconciliation. In some places, the keys are given to Peter, which thereby lies a tale for the last 2,000 years, right? Right? And to, in other places, the keys are given to all of the apostles and by extension to all of us. So we become, as it is true in today's gospel, ministers of reconciliation. To be sure, in our tradition and in the Western liturgical tradition of the churches that do this, we practice the sacrament of penance, popularly called confession. We believe there is a sacramental remedy to this to get rejoined to the promises of your baptism. And the clergy, through their ordination, are empowered in the name of the church to pronounce the forgiveness of sins. But that really isn't the whole story, and that's not where the main thing is that Jesus is speaking of today. He is speaking of the empowerment. His life breathed into the apostles and by extension into everyone whose lives they touch in their missionary work, and now they have the Spirit of God and are able to operate with God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen them and to bring the forgiveness that we believe is an attribute of God unconditionally so that we model that in our common life together in the church and also in our relationships one with another.
So Jesus here does something very important because he gives us some, some empowerment. And he gives us a focus with regard to uh, the forgiveness of sins. But more to the point, as it says in the opening prayer today, the ministry of reconciliation, the covenant of reconciliation, which is our baptismal covenant and also our life together. So that's first. That's very important as you proceed during the great 50 days of Easter. You have the resurrection, and now from the jump, the second Sunday, we're part of the ministry of reconciliation. And then we get Thomas, who was announced to his uh, fellow apostles because he wasn't there, that he wasn't going to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead or that what they had said were true until he could put his fingers in the wounds his hand in his side and see him and touch him. So, as I mentioned earlier, he gets a little treat. Jesus appears in, in the, this account and he is able to uh, have this affirmation whereupon he says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Jesus's mild rebuke is, have you believed because you have seen me? <clears throat> Blessed are those who have come to believe and have not seen me. I used to read this all the time and not focus on the come to believe. It occurs two times in this gospel. And it has something to do, I think, with the processes of faith and the maturing of our faith as we live. I think there's a lot, you know, in my own life, there's a lot of things that I wasn't sure about earlier that I've come to believe. And I've also discarded some things that uh, I had believed in very strongly in the past and now see have little utility, not just about, um, not just about religious matters, but also just about, you know, practical wisdom, a lot of magical thinking. I had a guy say to me one time, if I'm going to do something that I know I shouldn't do, but I'm in the car and I'm going, and on my way, all the lights are green, I think, well, you know, maybe this is something I should do. I mean, we're all capable of this kind of thinking, right? Belief that that is what it is. So coming to believe is that maybe in some ways making some distinctions that are important to make. You know, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. So if you worry about doubting or some skeptical things that you may just say, I don't know, this doesn't seem to fit, maybe it's a good thing to remember that. That people who are upset with religion are often upset because they don't like fundamentalists, but they're like fundamentalists wanting the certitude that fundamentalists believe they have when in fact they don't. They want that to be so, so that they could say, well, then it must be so. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have come to believe and have not seen. 
So it leaves it kind of hanging out for us. Here's another uh, hobby horse that I'll ride just briefly before I quit preaching. And that is that a lot of the heavy-duty skepticism that's in this culture today, a lot of knee-jerk opposition to organized religion, flows out of absolute cluelessness with regard to the faith and tradition of all important faith traditions in the world. Know nothing, or know and believe only what they got heard on extra, or whatever else it is they happen to watch about, you know, housewives of New York City. Good night, nurse. Okay? So you know the church has got to take it on the chin a little bit for not doing the job that it needs to do about catechizing, making people aware of what the tradition says it is that we, we believe and how we might come to terms with some of the uh, issues that are in front of us and to know something about the general way in which things uh, have operated in our culture. Here's a book I've talked about before. If you want to do this for yourself, Religious Literacy what every American needs to know and doesn't about religion. Stephen Prothero teaches religion at Boston College or, or Boston University, one or the other. And uh, he, he, he wrote this book for his students because he began to get people coming to class who had no idea about anything. That's what we're, we're in now. There used to be this common sharing of some, uh, what they call cultural literacy in other places. There was some understanding of at least what this is, whether you believed it or not. Now, nobody knows anything. So this is a good way, um, I mean, not no, you know something, I know this, but the fact is, is that this helps people. And you might learn some things about American culture tangentially too, like what a McGuffey reader is in here, and some things about how they talked about religion and American faith and life and why those things informed the way people were, you know. So it's important when we uh, put our skeptical cap on and believe that this is something that we need to do, that we, we, we're careful. Many, many, many years ago, when I was first becoming an Episcopalian, <coughs> Bishop James Pike was still alive, and he was interviewed uh, by, maybe it was... Bill, what was that guy's name? Bill Trieste on Channel 9, who always wore hush puppies and Ernst ties. <laughs> Remember that, that, that look of the KQED look? <laughs> so he's, he's uh, sitting here interviewing Pike. And uh, Jim Pike says to him at one point, you know, I believe it is important for everyone to have an open mind but it is also important that it's closed at one end, so stuff doesn't... <laughs> you know, it's like my, my uh, colleague, uh, Bill Rankin, who, who was in Belvedere for a while when I was still in Sausalito, and he said, you know, the problem with think tanks is that often they don't have a drain. <laughs> so think about an open mind that may be closed at one end so stuff can collect there and you can begin to ruminate about it. So the assignment would be this week, think about your role in the Ministry of Reconciliation and how you can bring some form of reconciliation uh, in your relational life that brings health and wholeness. 
understand that uh, this is absolutely at the heart of our common life together. You do this, by the way, whenever you give yourself to any worthy works outside, whenever you seek, not in the workplace to bring peace at any price, but integrity in relationship and understand that reconciliation is at the heart of what we're about. And then think about uh, your doubts and your skepticisms and know that uh, that isn't the opposite of your faith, but it's the logical working out of how you come to believe. Amen. Amen. Cafe.